Chapter 42 of Darkness and Daylight, or Lights and Shadows of New York Life. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Colleen McMahon. Darkness and Daylight, or Lights and Shadows of New York Life. Chapter 42 by Thomas Burns. Sharpers, Confidence Men, and Bunko Steerers. Wide open traps, tricks of sawdust and green goods dealers. Unfortunately, the temptation to take a hand in a seemingly innocent game of chance can scarcely be resisted by most people. Men of standing and respectability, including authors, politicians, divines, and even famous generals of America and Europe, have thus become easy prey for sharpers and have been roundly fleeced by confidence men and bunco steerers. The desire to beat the sharper at his own game often leads the stranger on to his ruin. The skillful and accomplished operator hunts his dupe among those of high life, while a lower order of these criminals select the ignorant, and especially the gullible countrymen, for their victims. It is a singular fact that while the rustic is often a trifle suspicious in his dealings with thieves, men of education and long experience are easily taken in by the glib-tongued, natally-dressed young men who shake hands with them so cordially on the street corner. The leading confidence men and bunco steerers are an industrious set. They are usually men of education, glib talkers with no end of assurance, gifted with a good knowledge of human nature and quick, fertile, and ingenious in resource. The few who are proficient in all these attainments find no difficulty in helping themselves to other people's money. This form of roguery has been said to be the safest and most amusing way for a shrewd thief to make his living. The rascals who follow it take a fiendish delight in outwitting men illustrious in the higher walks of life. A noted bunco operator once said in my hearing, Talk about trout fishing. Just think of the fun of hooking a man that's worth anywhere from 500 to $5,000. Of course, it takes a man of education and refinement to do this sort of business but there are several college graduates among our fellows who can do it. There certainly must be a strange fascination about this form of swindling, for the ranks of these sharpers have boasted of an ex-governor and of others who once filled high and responsible positions and figured in good society. Some of these sharpers ply their vocation in the vicinity of hotels and railroad depots, and others along the riverfront particular attention being paid to incoming steamers from foreign ports. Of all the different types of rogues, a successful confidence or bunco man is the most accomplished. It is a criminal calling that an unpolished man cannot successfully follow. Its success entirely depends upon the skill with which it is played, and in the selection of a victim, and in the subsequent skinning process, all the resources of the cunning operator are brought into play. Few of the gangs of these men exceed four in number, and the majority of them do not exceed three. The operators are very careful in their personal appearance. They never dress in conspicuous style, but aim to appear eminently respectable, rather than assume the airs and apparel of a man of fashion. Professional confidence men have more than once declared that a tinge of gray in their side whiskers would be a great advantage to them, and a bald head a fortune. Their methods of obtaining a victim's money vary as the circumstances require. The man who loiters about hotel offices and corridors awaiting his prey 
appears as the best-natured person in the world. He invariably has a smile on his face, and in moving out of the way of the guests and porters passing to and fro, politely bows at every turn. He eagerly scans the freshly written name in the register, and, when that has been obtained, he patiently awaits the chance to practice his threadbare tricks upon the new arrival. Those who operate on the river fronts or railroad depots are generally in search of a man to take charge of their stock farm, etc. Their numerous schemes have been exposed so often that it seems strange that these men should be able to eke out a livelihood, but it must be admitted that they do, and a good one too. They have boasted that a fool is born every minute, and that they are able to find more subjects than they can take care of. A veteran confidence man who died recently in an eastern prison was credited with having made over a million dollars during his long career of swindling. His wonderful cheek and coolness once enabled him to succeed in robbing the same man twice. Early in his criminal life, the confidence man realized $30,000 upon some worthless notes which he induced a wealthy gentleman to cash. Thirty years later, the sharper returned in the role of a penitent and promised to make restitution to his old victim for his past misdeeds. So well did he manage to gain the confidence of his former victim that in the course of a few days he borrowed from him $3,000 on another set of worthless notes. The headquarters of bunco men are generally inside or out-of-the-way streets. They usually hire a furnished apartment on a lower floor, and in nearly all cases there is no question about the nature of the business they intend to carry on in the place. The payment of a week's rent in advance satisfies the average landlord, and for the first week at least everything goes on all right. Having comfortably settled themselves in a suitable apartment, the rogues are ready for business. The handshaker then sallies forth and at the first opportunity grasps a stranger by the hand and exclaims, why, how do you do, Mr. Brown? How are all my friends in Greenville? The stranger, surprised at the warmth and unexpected friendliness of the reception, invariably responds, You've made a mistake, sir. My name is not Brown. I'm Mr. Jones of Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Then the rogue apologizes, hurries off, and reports to his confederate, the steerer, who hurriedly produces a book from his pocket and hunts up Oshkosh, Wisconsin. The book is a banknote reporter and gives a list of all the banks in the country, with a complete list of their officers. From the list, the bunco man instantly learns that Mr. Thomas is the president of the Oshkosh Bank, and that Meshers Black and White are among its directors. Then he hastily follows Mr. Jones, accosts him in the street, shakes hands with him, calls him by name, and saying he is President Thomas's nephew, asks with much solicitude about the health of the Blacks, Whites, and other prominent people. The stranger is flattered by the attention of the bank president's agreeable nephew, and he is soon decoyed, without the least suspicion, into the room where the boss bunco man is waiting to play his part. There are desks and maps in the apartment, and an air of business about the place, which to all appearances is the office of some commercial concern. The dupe is lured to the bunco men's shop by the usual story about a valuable painting drawn in a lottery, or some other equally plausible story, and he is made to believe that a few dollars will secure an article easily worth hundreds, etc. The stranger usually bites. He is anxious to get $500 for 100 He puts down his wad of bills, which the bold operators forthwith capture by fair means or foul, and the victim walks out in a brown study, not knowing exactly how he was done up, but quite sure that he has been swindled.
The bunco men immediately leave their office. The victim does not generally complain to the police because he is ashamed to confess his folly and fears that if he makes any complaint, the newspapers will learn of the robbery and all his friends in Oshkosh will hear of his mortifying experience. Another form of the bunco game was introduced into this country some years ago by a noted sharper who successfully operated throughout the West. He called the game a lottery, notwithstanding the fact that there is no lottery about it at all. The game is so simple and apparently honest that even the shrewdest are readily induced to take a hand and are as readily fleeced. There are 43 spaces upon a layout, 13 of which contain stars, conditional prizes. One space is blank, and the remaining 29 represent prizes ranging from two to $5,000. The game can be played with dice or cards. The latter are numbered with a series of small numbers ranging from one to six, eight of which are drawn and counted, the total representing the number of the prize drawn. Should the victim draw a star number, he is allowed the privilege of drawing again by putting up a small amount of money. He is generally allowed to win at first, and later on the game owes him from one to $5,000. This is when he draws the condition prize, number 27. The conditions are that he must put up $500, or as much as the dealer thinks he will stand. This is explained to him as necessary to save what he has already won and entitle him to another drawing. He draws again, and by skillful counting on the part of the dealer, he draws the blank and loses all. The notorious Hungry Joe is a most persistent and impudent bunco steerer who has victimized more people by the bunco game than any other five men in the profession. One of his exploits was the robbing of Mr. Joseph Ramsden, an elderly English tourist, out of $250 in the following manner. Among the passengers on board the steamship Gallia from Liverpool was an English gentleman past the prime of life, of fine appearance but somewhat in ill health. He stopped at a first-class hotel uptown. One afternoon, he strolled downtown on Broadway and was sauntering leisurely along when he was accosted by a well-dressed stranger who warmly grasped him by the hand and said, Why, how do you do, Mr. Ramsden? The latter expressed his inability to recognize the stranger, but the affable young man soon put the old gentleman at ease by adding, Oh, you don't know me, I forgot, but I know you from hearsay. My name is Post, Henry F. Post. You came over in my uncle's steamer yesterday. Captain Murphy of the Gallia is my uncle, and since his return has been stopping at my father's residence. He has spoken of you to us. Indeed, he has said so much about you and of your shattered health, that it seems to me as if I had known you a long time. I could not help recognizing you in a thousand from my uncle's perfect description of you. Mr. Ramsden had had a very pleasant voyage on the Gallia, during which Captain Murphy and he had become very friendly, and thus he was not surprised that the gallant skipper should speak of him. Mr. Post walked arm in arm with his uncle's English friend, chatting pleasantly and pointing out prominent business houses until they reached Grand Street. I'm in business in Baltimore, in ladies' underwear and white goods, said Mr. Post, and have been home laying in a stock of goods. I should much like to remain a day or two longer and show you around, but I am sorry that I must return to Baltimore this evening. In fact, I'm on my way now to get my ticket, and my valise is already in the ticket office. It needed but a few words to induce the elderly gentleman to accompany Post to the ticket office in Grand Street, and the two soon entered a room on that street. There the young man bought a railroad ticket of a man behind the counter. And now my valise, said Post to the ticket seller. 
Throwing the bag on the counter, the young man opened it, saying, Here are some muslins that can't be duplicated in England, and exhibited to the old gentleman some samples of that fabric. Near the bottom of the bag, he accidentally came upon a pack of playing cards, seizing which he exclaimed, Oh, that reminds me. Don't you know that last night some fellows got me into a place in the Bowery and skinned me out of $400 by a card trick in which they used only three cards? But I've got on to the game and I know just how it's done. They can't do me any more. At that moment, a man showily dressed emerged from a back room and said, I'll bet you $10 you can't do it. All right, put up your money, responded Joe. The cards were shuffled by the deft hands of the stranger and Joe was told to pick up the ace. He picked up a jack and lost. He lost a second time and offered to repeat it, but the stranger said, I don't believe you've got any more money. Well, but my friend here, pointing to Mr. Ramsden, has. I don't believe he has, sneeringly retorted the stranger. Oh, yes, I have, interrupted the venerable Englishman, at the same time pulling a roll of ten crisp five-pound notes from his inside vest pocket and holding them to the gaze of the others. The temptation was too great for Hungry Joe who so far forgot himself and his uncle's friendship from the English merchant that he hastily grabbed the roll from Ramsden's hand. The latter tightened his grasp on the notes, but Joe violently thrust the old man backwards and getting possession of the money ran out of the place, followed by his confederates. Ramsden notified the detective bureau that evening, giving an accurate description of Captain Murphy's nephew, which resulted in Hungry Joe's arrest. Joe was sitting in his shirt sleeves in the basement of the house, quietly smoking a cigar and resting his slippered feet on a chair. He tried his old game of bluff, as is his custom, but finding it useless, donned his coat and boots and accompanied me to headquarters. Mr. Ramsden was at once summoned and was confronted in my room by Hungry Joe and eight other men and asked to select the swindler. There's the man, he quickly said, pointing to Hungry Joe. I never saw you before, sir, coolly replied Joe. You scoundrel, excitedly exclaimed Mr. Ramsden. You are the fellow that robbed me of my money. The evidence against Joe was conclusive, and in court he pleaded guilty and was sentenced to four years in state prison. Another equally notorious character succeeded in swindling an Episcopal clergyman by handing him a forged letter of introduction from another minister in Cleveland, whose name he had discovered in a church almanac. The letter read, My brother is buying books for me. Please honor his draft for $100 and thereby do me a great favor. The preacher thought it was all right and said he was glad to meet the Reverend Mr. Watts' brother and gave the desired check, only to discover a little later on that he had been neatly swindled. Not long ago, fraudulent bankers flooded the country with circulars showing what great profits could be made by speculating in stocks. If the bait was taken, it was quite possible that the victim would be notified that he had made a handsome profit on his first investment, but the money was not sent to him with the announcement. It was retained, subject to order, and an inducement of still greater profit was held out if the money was reinvested. This was generally the case, and not infrequently the victim added new money to the original investment. This went on until it was certain that no more could be obtained from him, and then he received a statement showing that his last investment proved very unfortunate and that not only had all his money been lost, but he was in debt to the firm. He was generally brought pretty heavily in debt too, not that he was expected to pay, but the victim was very likely to repudiate the whole transaction, 
drop all further correspondence and consider himself lucky if he was not prosecuted for his obligations. A recently popular form of swindle was known as the panel game and was successfully worked by swindlers known as sawdust men or green goods dealers. Their first move was to secure a list of the names of people who are regular subscribers to lotteries and various gift concerns. People who go into those things will be pretty sure to bite at other well-baited hooks. When the list had been duly studied, agents were sent all over the country to look up the history of the most promising candidates. This done, a circular was mailed to each man, which read as follows. New York City, blank, blank, 1890, blank. Mr. Blank, dear sir, I will confide to you through this circular a secret by which you can make a speedy fortune. I have on hand a large amount of counterfeit notes of the following denominations, 1, 2, 5, 10, and 20. I guarantee every note to be perfect, as every note is examined by myself carefully as soon as finished, and if not strictly perfect, is immediately destroyed. Of course, it would be foolishness for me to send out poor work, as it would not only get my customers in trouble, but would break up my business and ruin me. So for personal safety, I am compelled to issue nothing that will not compare with the genuine. I furnish you with the goods in any quantity at the following low prices, which will be found as reasonable as the nature of the business will allow. For $1,200 in my goods assorted, I charge $100. For $2,500, I charge $200. For $5,000, I charge $350. For $10,000, I charge $500. You can see from the above price list the advantage of buying largely. You cannot make money as rapidly in any other business, and there is not the slightest danger in using my goods, one of the best proofs being that not a single person doing business with me has ever been in any trouble. On the contrary, all making money rapidly. I have no connection with any other firm in this country, and every dollar of my money is manufactured under my own personal supervision. So in dealing with me, you get the goods from first hands. Do not call at the address given here, as I do not receive visitors at my office, merely use it to get my letters. Write to me two days before you start to come on here to New York, saying exactly when you will be here, and tell me what hotel you will stop at, so I will know where to meet you. I will call on you at your own room, where we can transact our business without anyone knowing anything about it. As soon as you arrive in the city, go straight to this hotel and register your name. Go up to your room and stay in your room until I call on you. Have nothing to say to any person who cannot show you your last letter to me, and when you see your own handwriting, then you will know you are dealing with the right party. Should you conclude to send for samples before coming to New York, I will send you a sample packed in book form containing $300, $300 in assorted sizes on receipt of $30. Should you send for goods, follow these instructions carefully. Send all money in a thick envelope by mail, well sealed, with my name and address plainly written. Do not send by registered letter or by express, as such letters cause suspicion, and I will not receive or notice them. Enclosed you will find my name and address with a card of a good hotel as convenient as any in New York. Should you order goods, send your express address. Yours confidentially. The green goods dealer is a swindler who preys upon the cupidity and dishonesty of mankind. An honest man receiving such circulars or letters destroys them or sends them to the police. The dishonest man writes cautiously to the address given and receives a cautious reply 
usually containing nothing but hints that are not explicit enough to sustain a charge of fraud. A personal interview with his correspondent is what the swindler seeks. These sharpers never have any counterfeit money about them under any circumstances. If a case appears promising, they sometimes risk a few dollars as samples of their green goods, but these samples are invariably genuine notes of the United States Treasury, which have been obtained quite new at a bank. The old saw about throwing a sprat to catch a will is not unknown to this gentry. If the victim conducts his business through the mails or through express companies, he is fleeced very easily. He sends his genuine money and receives in return either nothing at all or else an envelope or a box whose contents are sawdust or other valueless things. If he prefers to come to the city to pay his money and obtain the green goods in person, he is instructed to send word two days before his expected arrival in the city to go to a hotel the name of which is given and to remain in strict seclusion in his room until the manufacturer calls upon him. After his arrival at the designated hotel, an agent sends up his card and devotes an hour to sounding the man to see if he is fair game or an emissary from the police in disguise. If all promises well, the man leaves, appointing the next day as the time for the bargain. On the following day, the agent drops into the hotel and escorts the stranger to the factory. In a roughly furnished office, before a high desk at a wall, sits the principal operator, busily counting out a huge pile of crisp bills. They are genuine bills, fresh from the government treasury and of all denominations. The countryman is introduced, and the process by which the money can best be disposed of is explained and general directions are given as to the best means to avoid suspicion. Then the genuine bills are exhibited. The operator always protests that they are poor counterfeits and would never deceive him, but on the whole he thinks they will do. The amount desired is carefully counted out and handed to the stranger to recount. The bills are then nicely done up in packages, each denomination by itself, and the whole carelessly tossed into a small leather grip sack. This done, the bag is laid on top of the desk, while the manufacturer holds the attention of the stranger and lifts the lid of the desk in front of, and so as to completely hide, the bag. Half a dozen genuine bonds are shown as specimens of good counterfeiting, and the suggestion is made that after the money just purchased has been used, the customer may take a fancy to handle some bonds also. While the two men are busy looking at the bonds, a confederate in the next room opens a noiseless slide or panel in the wall, swiftly changes the satchel for one precisely like it, but with the important difference that the contents are nothing but old newspapers instead of thousands of dollars in genuine money fresh from the government printing presses. The victim is escorted to the railway station under promise to go straight home and not to open the satchel on any account until he gets there lest the detectives may see what is in his possession. When he reaches home and retires to his most secret room or shed or barn, he eagerly opens the satchel and discovers what? Dashes and exclamation points will best indicate his remarks. He is pretty sure to preserve silence, as he does not wish his neighbors to know that he has designed to pass counterfeit money upon them. He dare not complain to the police, for he would criminate himself by so doing. If he does complain and seeks to prosecute those who have defrauded him, he gets little satisfaction. He cannot prove the substitution of the satchel for the very obvious reason that he did not see it, and altogether his case is very weak. Since the panel trick became known, the sawdust men have invented other devices, 
They recently issued a long circular, which contains a clipping supposed to be cut from a New York newspaper, announcing that a full set of dies and plates had been stolen from the sub-treasury. It is claimed that the dealer has obtained the stolen plates, from which the greenbacks he offers for sale are struck off. This interesting circular ends with the following statement. The newspaper quotation will show you that our officials in high standing have used my bills for their own purpose and benefit, and why not everyone in need? Address, in confidence, etc. The purpose of the letter is to lead the one address to believe that the money offered is really genuine, being printed from the plates claimed to have been stolen from the treasury. Then, the same old scheme of inducing a man to go to a certain hotel from whence he is duly conducted to the office is successfully worked. The green goods business has grown and prospered. The operators work carefully, their only fear being lest some detective be entrapped. The police have tried over and over again to get at the swindlers, and although they are known, and occasionally some of them are caught, it is not easy to obtain direct proof against them. Their victims refuse to testify, for the very fact of having had dealings with these swindlers closes their mouths. Moral, honesty is the best policy. The End End of Chapter 42 End of Darkness and Daylight, or Lights and Shadows of New York Life, by various authors